Hi everyone, welcome back. Today we're going to start telling the story of Joseph, the favorite of the 12 sons of Jacob, and the last section of the book of Genesis. The main point of this whole story is that it explains how the Israelites got to Egypt. Because after Genesis comes the book of Exodus, which is the story of slavery and Moses and coming back to the promised land, the story we just told over Passover. But how we got to Egypt in the first place, that's part of today's story. Welcome back to Jew I Don't Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. We all know a Joseph. He's one of these guys that no matter what bad things happen to him, he has a muddled way of coming out on top. And it's not just because he's super clever and makes things happen. Things just sort of happen to him that way. He's always on top. The other theme of today's story has a lot to do with unintended consequences. Small decisions become huge problems, bad intentions turn out good, and interpersonal conflicts drag in entire families and nations. These last few chapters of Genesis are different than the rest of the book in that they read kind of like a novel. There's a beginning, middle, and an end, plot twists, characters that come in and out, and it is the action on the ground that drives the story. Interesting fact, God makes no appearance for the rest of the book of Genesis. Not really, anyway. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they've all had their face time with God, but Joseph won't. In contrast to the stories about the patriarchs and the matriarchs, God here is in the background, the invisible hand, leading from behind. Human choices, intentions, and behaviors make this story, but there's just enough serendipity for the reader to appreciate that God is still lurking, occasionally moving a few pieces around the board. Where we begin is with Joseph, 17 years old, the firstborn son of Rachel, who was Jacob's favorite wife and who has just died. He is Jacob's favorite son. And to indicate his favoritism, Jacob makes Joseph an ornamented tunic, or coat of many colors. The rabbis have long used this passage and the rest of the story as a warning about what happens when a parent favors one child over the other. They've long noted that for this one stupid coat, we ended up enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And that's because Jacob's obvious favoritism angered the other 11 brothers, who hated Joseph. Joseph didn't help matters when he told them about a dream that he had that seemed to indicate that he believed himself superior to them, so they really hated him even more after that. Okay, so lesson one of the Joseph story, parental favoritism is bad. This is why I tell every birthright group that, no, no, they're the best one I've ever had. Out looking for his brothers one day, Joseph was about to give up and head home because he couldn't find them. But then he ran into a stranger. The stranger asked what he was looking for, and Joseph asked if the man knew where his brothers were. Yes, said the man, and pointed Joseph in the right direction, which was very nice of him. But who was this random man? We have no idea, or why he was even mentioned in the Torah. But as the rabbis have pointed out, this nameless man changed the history of the world. If Joseph had not run into him, he never would have found his brothers that day. And everything that came after it, slavery in Egypt, Moses, the Exodus, Mount Sinai, Israeli software, and the iPhone, none of that would ever have occurred. So lesson number two. We can never know the consequences of even the small acts of kindness that we do for one another. It's entirely possible that that nice thing you did for someone the other day will lead their descendants into slavery. 
I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Actually, as we will see, this anonymous stranger's tip led eventually to Joseph's triumph. It happens that while Joseph was out looking for his brothers, they were conspiring to kill him and leave his body in a pit. But one brother, Reuben, had a better idea. He convinced the brothers not to kill him, but to just leave him in the hole. That way, Reuben would come back later, pretend to rescue Joseph, bring him back to their father, and presumably slide into the second favorite kid slot. When Joseph arrived, the brothers tore off his coat of many colors and tossed him in the pit. But then an even better idea presents itself. The brothers sell Joseph into slavery to a passing caravan for 20 pieces of silver. They dip his coat in the blood of a lamb and bring it to Jacob, who assumes that Joseph has been killed by a savage beast. He who deceived his father Isaac by dressing in his brother's clothes is now himself deceived by his own children bringing him the clothing of his favorite son. He goes into deep mourning and cannot be comforted, and for the next many years would assume that his son was dead. At the same time, Joseph arrives in Egypt and is sold to a high-ranking official of the pharaoh, a man named Potiphar. Potiphar, seeing that God is with Joseph, puts him in charge of his household, which prospers under Joseph's control. But then the troubles begin. Joseph finds himself refusing Potiphar's wife's seductions, and she is not happy about that. Grabbing the edge of his tunic, she demands that he sleep with her, but he wiggles out of his clothing and runs off. And so once again, his coat will be used against him. This time, Potiphar's wife presents the coat to her husband, claiming that Joseph tried to sleep with her but ran off when she started screaming. So Potiphar throws him in jail. But, the Torah reminds us, God is still with him and makes the chief jailer like Joseph and put him in charge of all the prisoners. As the Torah notes, God makes everything Joseph does successful. And things are looking up, because Joseph is about to get a reputation as an interpreter of dreams, which is going to come in very handy. Pharaoh imprisons two of his officials, his cupbearer and his baker. Under Joseph's care in prison, they each have a dream which they ask Joseph to interpret. For the cupbearer, Joseph predicts that in three days' time he will be pardoned by Pharaoh and restored to his position. But for the baker, Joseph predicts that in three days' time Pharaoh will have him executed. Specifically, paled on a stick for the birds to eat off his flesh. You will not be surprised to learn that both dream interpretations come true. Yet Joseph lingered in prison for another two years. In an insomnia-fueled night, Pharaoh, tossing and turning, has two dreams. In the first, seven handsome and sturdy cows come up out of the Nile River. But they were followed by seven ugly and emaciated cows, who ate the handsome cows. In the second dream, seven ears of healthy grain grew on a single stalk. But after them came seven thin and scorched ears that ate up the healthy ones. When Pharaoh's magicians couldn't interpret these dreams, the cupbearer said, You know, I knew this guy in prison. And so Pharaoh brings Joseph before him and asks for an interpretation. The seven healthy cows and the seven healthy grains are seven years of an abundance of food, says Joseph. And the seven ugly cows and grains are seven years of famine. But since God has revealed these intentions to Pharaoh, we can prepare. In the seven years of plenty, says Joseph, collect as much grain as you can and store it to use during the coming bad years. Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph and with Joseph's God that he puts Joseph in charge of the whole project, appointing him the second highest ranking official in Egypt except for the Pharaoh himself. He gives Joseph a ring, 
fine clothing, a gold chain around his neck, a chariot, and an Egyptian wife named Asenath. At 30 years old, Joseph is now in charge of Egypt. So lesson number three from the story of Joseph. Jewish tradition teaches us that life is cyclical. We have good years and bad years. Sometimes we're the favorite son, other times we're thrown in a pit. Sometimes we achieve high status, other times we languish in prison. But if we, like Joseph, maintain our faith through the bad times and keep it in reserve during the good, then no matter what befalls us, we too can come to rule Egypt. With, as with Joseph, better clothing each time. So the good years come, and Joseph runs around the country, storing so much grain that he can't measure it anymore. He and his wife have two sons in this time, Manasseh and Ephraim, after whom two of the later twelve tribes of Israel will be named. But soon enough, the seven good years end, and the seven famine years begin. Egypt weathers it with plenty of grain, thanks to Joseph, but the rest of the world is struggling. And in a house, on a plot of land in Canaan, there sits a man, named Jacob, who decides to send 10 of his sons down to Egypt to try to score some grain. By the way, up to this point, we haven't really had a label or a name for the collective figures of our story. Although Abraham and his family are credited with being the first Jews, they're not Jewish in the way that we understand Judaism. There's not yet Jewish law defining what is and who is Jewish. That doesn't come until Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. So although we might reference them as Jews now, the truth is that the patriarchs and matriarchs didn't have Judaism, and they didn't call themselves Jews. They didn't even have the word Jew back then. Abraham is referenced as a Hebrew, meaning one from the other side. So we can refer to the family perhaps as Hebrews, but even that term is only used on rare occasions. We do, however, have another name, Israel, the name that Jacob received after wrestling all night long with that strange being. And at this point in the story, when Jacob orders his sons to go down to Egypt, we first get the name Israelite that will stay with us for centuries. His sons are here in this passage referred to as the Bnei Yisrael, the children of Israel or Israelites. And from here forward, that's what we're going to call ourselves. And yet Joseph, at this point, seems far removed from the Israelites. He was forcefully evicted from his family, has been embedded in Egyptian society for years now, married an Egyptian woman, has his own family, and has achieved this ultra-high status in Egyptian society. Remember how the names that Rachel and Leah gave their sons reflected how each woman felt at that stage of her fight for Jacob's love? So too with Joseph. For his first son, Manasseh, means he who causes me to forget my hardship and parental home. And his second son, Ephraim, means God made me fertile in the land of my affliction. In Jewish tradition, naming is serious business and often reflects a permanent feature of either the namer or the named. If Jacob, now Israel, was defined by his wrestling match with God, then Joseph seems to be defining himself as someone who has started life over. To the extent that he ever thought about his father, or his brothers, or his home, he's never showed it. Like some sort of PTSD, he seems to have successfully repressed those early years of his life. But he's about to face a reckoning that will test some of the most central values of Jewish tradition. Forgiveness, destiny, the strength of family, the call towards home. He arrived in Egypt the immature, pampered, favorite son, 
And now, as his brothers make their way to Egypt, he sits at the pinnacle of world power, having achieved his status through wisdom, foresight, integrity, and a little bit of nudging from God. The question is what he will do with this power. Will he exact revenge on his brothers when they get there? Will he accept them? Will he ignore them? The fate of the Israelite people and the covenant with God rests with the choices that Joseph will have to start making. For unbeknownst to all involved, but known to us, is that whether you think Joseph's choices are going to be right or wrong, good-intentioned or not, forgivable or inexcusable, the road will end in one place. Egypt. So today's episode was maybe a little bit shorter than normally, and there is so much to cover with the Joseph story, it's kind of hard to make choices, but it's been a long week, and I didn't quite have time to really do a whole long episode, but that's okay, because this story is so long that we can split it up into a few different parts. So, next episode, the era of the Jewish forefathers and mothers, the patriarchs and the matriarchs, is going to come to a close. Joseph and his brothers meet, Jacob dies... Then Joseph dies, and God's promise that we will live in the land of Canaan, it dies too, at least for the next 400 years, as the Israelite people go into slavery in Egypt. <laughs>